From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Chris Lambert, founder and CEO of Life Remodeled, located in Detroit, Michigan, joins me to discuss his organization's transformative work in the Motor City. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. When it comes to positive news stories about Detroit, Michigan, the majority of such stories focus on the past, the Detroit that used to be. But my guest, Chris Lambert, has his focus on the Detroit that can be. With dogged determination, Lambert follows a vision that if you did not know it, you might think he was insane. But if you do know it, you might find it inspirational and possible. We are honored to have him on The Public Morality. Chris Lambert, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron Williams, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Let's begin. How do you define uh, life remodel? Okay, so let me tell you what we do, how we do it, and then why we do it. So what we do is we revitalize neighborhoods in Detroit, one neighborhood at a time. How we do it is we focus on a four-square-mile area. We find out from the youth, from the residents, what they want for the future of their community. And then we do three things physically over a five-year period. Number one, we mobilize 10,000 volunteers in six days to do this by four square miles, the same four square miles every summer, six days at a time for five straight years. Number two, we repair owner-occupied homes. And number three, we repurpose former vacant school buildings into one-stop shops of opportunity. Now, the reason why we do this the way we do it is this. I am convinced the main reason urban poverty continues to exist in America is because we have not yet figured out how to play well with each other across race and socioeconomic differences. And I found that if you try to get two people who are polar opposites on issues of race, religion, or politics to sit down at a table, look each other in the eye, have a conversation, and work it out, nine times out of ten, that's not a very productive conversation. But if you're able to invite those same two individuals to work shoulder to shoulder on a project they both agree on, something magical happens where they begin to realize they like each other, they need each other, they respect each other, and that's why we mobilize 10,000 volunteers every day. It sets the groundwork for long-term sustainable change. Now, to many, um, sadly, the, the Detroit um, is either an afterthought or some would posit that it's a poster child for failed liberal policies. Give us, give us the Detroit from your perspective. So this is the city that literally put the world on wheels. This is the city where the first four-way stoplight in the world was first placed in Detroit. In 1960, we had the highest per capita income in the country. And then we experienced a number of tragic events and situations that took us to a point of radical decline, where in 2011, Time Magazine called us the icon for the failed American city. And we experienced 
a, a number of factors that led to that title. So we, we definitely went through significant amounts of white flight. This was a city that had 1.8 million people, and now we're down to about 650,000. And it wasn't just white people that were leaving. It was anybody who could leave, but it was really the wealth that left the city first that then put it in a position where anybody who could get out wanted to get out as quickly as they can. So there's quite a few factors. I don't know if you want to dive into any of those. No, 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 please. I I, I think people like to know because I think oftentimes we too often we see sound bites. Oh, Detroit. Oh, that's awful. Or, or, or you name the city, so not just Detroit, but they, they see the sound bite, but rarely do we have an opportunity to have the in-depth conversation. So if there are some factors, please share those factors with us. Okay, so let's talk about the 1967 uprising, or what many would call the Detroit riot. I am of the opinion that that situation was created, that if, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, if we look back on it, we can see exactly why it happened, and we can see exactly how we could have not only avoided it, but we, have, we could have created a, a beautiful city. And a number of factors created the, the riots. So one would be called redlining, which was federally imposed across the country in various places, and even in the north, and even in Detroit in 1967, where African Americans were not allowed to live in most neighborhoods of Detroit. They were forced to live if they wanted to live in Detroit in certain areas. And what that translates to is black middle class or, or middle upper class families who are rising up the ranks and wanted to move their children to a better school, better part of the city, weren't allowed to do that. And they were required to stay in the areas where they were allowed. And that literally created ghettos because people weren't able to uh, choose where they wanted to live, and, and that, that, that led to a number of, of upsetting results. Um, you also have very significant police brutality, which created a climate of anger and frustration to the point where people said, hey, you know what, um, screw it. We're, this is how we're going to send a message. And that led to violence and, and rioting, and then that led to a significant amount of flight out of the city where people were concerned for their lives. They were concerned for the future of Detroit's economy. And then you had suburbs created, which are, are now very wealthy and thriving, uh, and at that time were just farmland. Hmm. Uh, what, what are the, uh, uh, on your website, uh, on the on Life and Model website, you, it's written, we exist to bridge people across dividers that can help transform each other's lives. A lofty goal to be sure, and you sort of you talked about it in your in your initial statement, but could you expand on that? Because you're talking about, I mean, tra- you're in the transformation business. That, that 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 that's that's a wide open space. So speak more about that, if you would, if you had some examples of how how that plays itself out in in, in the work of life remodeled. All right, so let me talk about some of the challenges that we face in the city of Detroit. In Detroit. We do not have a talent issue. We have an opportunity issue. And I say that believing this. I believe talent is evenly distributed all around the world, but opportunity is not. And so let me give you some data and some statistics. 84% of children right now in Detroit schools, public and charter, currently are not able to read at grade level. The top 
top predictor in most states of how many jail cells to build for the future would be this, how many kids are reading at a third grade level by the end of third grade, because it's literally a science where up until third grade, you're learning how to read. After third grade, you're reading to learn. So if you haven't gotten it at that point, you're 66% more likely to end up incarcerated or on welfare. 50% of adults right now are functionally illiterate, which is the result of an ongoing cycle. In the, now, are you, are you speaking, talk, you're speaking in Detroit, right? In the city of Detroit. Okay. Now let's put that in context with our surrounding suburbs where in Michigan, schools are allotted funding based on uh, how many pupils, how many students are in the, the school, how many are enrolled. And, of course, the tax base is a major factor in determining how much each student is, is given, how much each school is given per student. In the suburbs, the surrounding suburbs around Detroit, the average school is giving a minimum of twice the amount per student that Detroit schools are getting. So we're extremely underfunded. We've experienced the significant population loss, which means we've closed over 100 school buildings, and we still have many buildings that are only at 10 to 20% occupancy. And so running a building that was meant for 4,000 kids and only has 400 in it um, is, is, you know, every time you turn the lights on, you lose money. And so I'm just talking about education right now, okay? There's a number of factors against us where our children aren't given the resources that they need to be able to not only survive, but to thrive. And that sets them back. And so now I want to talk about equity, and equity is all about relationships, where if you look at the vast majority of jobs in America are acquired through relationships. Or if you look at venture capital, venture capital is typically given through relationships. And I read a few months ago, that in 2018, $131 billion was deployed in America in venture capital. From the year 1970 to the year 2018, that's 48 years, only $1.2 billion was deployed to entrepreneurs of color. And that's because we have a dramatic breakdown in relationships. And so African Americans in Detroit and around the country are not able to access the same levels of opportunity because those opportunities predominantly fall in the hands of white males or uh, privileged white people in general. So we have a major gap that race is the, the biggest factor in that gap. So uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Chris Lambert, founder and CEO of Life Remodeled, located in Detroit, Michigan. Chris, you know, with my background in, in theology, as you know, I was struck by um, your family values, but in particular, um, the family value where you cite is see the unseen. Now, I understand that you're defining, you know, in terms of being able to see what could be, but could that also include people who are stuck on society's margins? Can you can you have transformation without the ability to see those who are uh, who are unseen largely by the larger society? No, you can't. And from one spiritual man to another, I, 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 here's how I define my life. 
I'm committed to be like this certain Jewish construction worker who lived about <laughs> 2,000 years ago. He was brutally murdered, and he, he came back to life, and he remodeled my life, and uh, he's in the remodeling business, right? And I'm convinced that that guy that we both know as Jesus spent the majority of his time giving out his power and his resources to the most marginalized people in society. He demonstrated, he lived it, and I believe from cover to cover of that book that, that, that we both call the Bible, that God's heart for the poor is unique as compared to the rest of society. Even Jesus, his first sermon he preached in his hometown, he read from Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, I've come to bring the good news to the poor. Now, of course, we know he came to bring it to everybody, but first and foremost, the poor were at his heart. So theologically speaking, that's God's heart. And that's enough for me to align my life and my practices with the marginalized. Um, but there's people like you that are way smarter than me that can talk about the, the economic benefits of, of helping the marginalized. But for me, just the way Jesus lived is all I really needed to know. Well, you you mentioned uh, the poor, and it seems to me what part of the um, the unstated mission of life remodeled is that you are working with those on society's margin sort of an economic disadvantage but you're also working to transform some of those who may not be economically disadvantaged but at the same time are spiritually disadvantaged so they too qualify for a different type of for different type of poor so aren't you working with 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 both groups in terms of that transformation well, I love that you picked up on that from our website because that's exactly what we hope that people will see we very intentionally call this life remodeled and not Detroit remodeled because Detroit remodeled would be a typical model of charity where you have benefactors and beneficiaries and benefactors are seen as the heroes and the beneficiaries are seen as the poor, poor people who have their hands out and they don't have much to offer, but they need to receive from the beneficiaries, say thank you. And then maybe one day they can climb up the ladder a couple steps and we believe a very different reality exists. We believe that in many ways, we are on the same playing ground when it comes to this. We all have a lot to offer, and we all have a lot to learn from one another. And so I'm a white guy who was raised in a small town in northern Indiana. I, I, I never heard the word urban revitalization, the word urban revitalization said uh, in succession. I didn't even know what that was, Okay. And um, then I moved into the suburbs, and I have been on a journey of personal learning. But I'm going to tell you, I've received more than I've been given, and the people that are teaching me don't get paid to do it. I, I did master's degrees and a doctoral degree and spent some time at Harvard. But I'm going to tell you, the people I'm learning from in the neighborhoods in Detroit, many of whom don't have college degrees, most who don't have college, and some don't have high school, are teaching me just as much, if not more, than the educations I received in academia and paid a lot of money to get. Um, I also, you, you, you commented on my um, looking at your website and my research there. I also saw you on, on a recent, uh, not recent, but several years ago, TED Talks in Detroit. And I'd yeah. like for you to talk about Osborne High School and talk about what that, that work at Osborne High School, if you would. So Osborne High School is located on the northeast side of Detroit. 
in the zip code that at one time for many years was unfortunately number one in the country for violence. And that violence has decreased significantly, and our work has played a very big role in that. But um, what we used to do is we used to renovate existing high schools, and now we actually acquire these vacant school buildings and repurpose them. But let me talk about what we used to do, and specifically Osborne High School. So the biggest physical problem at that school building was the roof. When it rained outside, it literally poured on students. There were trash cans filled with brown moldy water, and I honestly, Byron, did not believe it until I saw it for myself. And when I saw it, I realized that this would have been outside the city, a.k.a. north of 8 miles. Auburn this Hills. Would have been a, <laughs> yeah, this would have been a national news story, right? But because it was in Detroit, it was just another day. And so we were able to re-roof 70% of that 150,000-square-foot roof thanks to four area contractors that donated their labor and discounted materials, and it was awesome. Um, but the bigger story was the life transformation that took place. And the TED Talk uh, that you heard focused on uh, one individual's story in particular, uh, but there's another story I'd love to tell you about Please. that wasn't in that TED Talk. And it's the story of a woman named Pandora Ingram, and Pandora is literally her name. And the first day we ever met her was when she burst into one of our monthly community meetings. She was angry and she was intoxicated. And uh, she had a number of very negative things to say about, oh, you're just another organization that's a bunch of talk. You're going to talk about your plans, plans, plans. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. All right. And in that first interaction with Pandora, you know, she set the stage that, that she was completely against this work and everything that we were going to have uh, take place moving forward. But over a period of about seven months, we formed an incredibly transformational relationship with Pandora, uh, mutually beneficial, mutually transformational. We learned a lot from her about her community, and she learned a lot from being around people who care about her, who are committed to her, and who did what we said we were going to do. And after that journey of remodeling that school and working together to renovate parts of her home, and she was a leader in the community during the six-day project and ended up leading thousands of volunteers to transform her community, her life was dramatically changed spiritually, emotionally, relationally. She was able to stop drinking and um, get employment and I stay in close contact with her. That was since 2015, and she's doing well to this day. Mm. And so it, it really is on the life-on-life basis in the context of relationships, and that goes back to our mission about bridging divides. You know, I had every reason to, to not like Pandora. She gave me those reasons. And uh, I'm going to tell you, if left to my own devices, I would have just walked away from her instantly and said, let's move on. But there was something spiritual happening that said, you know what, stay connected to Pandora and let's see what happens. And I think that that's really the essence of this journey for all of us is when we jump into the mix of bringing people together across different socioeconomic situations, different political perspectives, different religious lenses, different life situations, and we just follow that voice of where are there connections that need to be made, we end up experiencing some incredible relationships that take us down a path that we never anticipated, 
and it, it really proves to be the greatest adventure of our lives. Well, you know, Chris, one of the things that really struck me about your work, having an opportunity to talk to you before and then doing, doing the requisite research on, on Life Remodel, is my experience has been that organizations will come in with the best of intentions but are not willing to go beyond their unstated comfort level. It, mm. it, it, it seen, and, and the feeling I get from Life Remodel is, is you're willing to take that risk to go beyond your unstated comfort level. Because we all have one. We all have an, yep. okay, this is too much. I can't, I can't go any further than this. But you're willing to do that and you're willing to cultivate that sort of throughout, throughout the organization. How are you able to do that? Well, personally speaking, for me, that is spiritual. I cannot take any credit whatsoever for going past my limits because i got a lot of limits that have helped me back for a lot of years. And so I'm only going to give credit to God for the ability to do that. I'm also going to say it's like anything in life. Once you start going past one limit, then you're ready to go past the next one and the next one, and you get better and better and better at it. And we organizationally have gotten better at it each year, realizing we have significant blind spots as individuals, and we all have, and we have blind spots as an organization. And so year after year, we began to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And what that really means is listening to people, listening to people who live in these communities. They really know what their communities need. And we're not going to get the, the right or even the truthful answer out of somebody by meeting with them one time or two times. And, and, and maybe even it takes years, I'm going to tell you, because what I've learned is my skin tone, I'm a white guy, right, for the listeners who haven't you know, seen me, you know that, that. but uh, carries a power dynamic to it to where there's such distrust for over 400 years that has been formed that I'm not going to get truthful answers for a lot of different reasons by just meeting someone for the first or second time. There needs to be a real barrier, a real, not a barrier, there needs to be a real bridge of trust built where people can, can trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, but I'm really going to listen, and I'm going to do what they say needs to be done and not just do these listening sessions, which are all too common in urban neighborhood revitalization. You have listening sessions that are nothing but political stunts to show people that, oh, we listen to you. But in reality, the decisions are made many times before that listening session ever happens. And so over years, we've proven that we actually care what people have to say. We're willing to change our agenda according to what they have to say. And then that speaks volumes to the point where we actually get to hear the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And uh, that doesn't come overnight. Well, you, you, you've, you've touched on it in several of your answers, and um, I think we should be explicit about it. Talk about from the time you started this work until the present moment, just uh, how much race plays in the work. I mean, you're a white guy, but your staff's not all white. So how much does race play in, in this work that you're doing? Well, um, every, everything. And I did not realize that at all. I thought I did. I'm a guy who uh, moved to Africa for nine months, my wife and I, and lived in a mud hut in a Muslim village, in a village in Liberia. And I thought I understand contextualization by that work that I did there, the theological studies that I took. And I, I thought I understood race in America. 
but there, there's a lot of hurdles that we put up to us really understanding it. And one of them is our staff was completely white from 2011 all the way up until 2013. And I tried to find African-Americans to fill positions that we had open, but I could never find candidates that were the right fit for the job. And over time, what I came to discover is the reason I couldn't find them is because, of one, I didn't have the relational network to be able to find um, high-caliber leaders that would join our organization in the black community. I had that in the white community, and so I was able to find a, a great number of white candidates day in and day out. And the second thing I began to realize is why would somebody who was black want to work for an organization that's completely white and, and, and was sending a message that we're going to fix Detroit. Now, I didn't know we were sending that message, but now I can understand that that's the message that people heard and that's the message that people saw. And so the more I began to, to break bread with more African-Americans in the city of Detroit, the more I began to develop a relational network and a relational network of trust that then led to phenomenal African-American leaders saying, I want to join this organization. So our... Uh, board, um, half of them are African-American. Our staff, over half of our staff is black and uh, very proud of, of those gains. But it was not until the neighborhood we're in right now that I really began to understand what a big deal race was. And let me put this in context. In, in 2015, there was a documentary made about our organization, which is on our website, and it was made by three black uh, young guys who are all close friends of mine. And I remember when uh, the, the lead documentarian asked me in 2015, he said, hey, what role do you see race playing in your work? And at that time, this is how ignorant I was, and this is not long ago, so I'm, I'm ashamed that it was so recent, uh, is I said, you know what, I really don't think that um, it's playing much of a role. We're getting along extremely well. We have wonderful relationships with the neighborhood and our staff and um, our volunteers. Everybody seems to be getting along. I'm really proud of how we're doing what we're doing. Fast forward to 2017, the year 2017, when we were given a gorgeous former school building for $1 a year for 50 years. And we had already established relationships with this community that that school building is in before we were given that building. We had already established good working relationships that I thought everything was smooth sailing. But the minute we got that building for $1 a year for 50 years, several people lost it. They blew up. And I don't mean to say that in a critical way. In my, in my original interaction, I became very defensive, and I was surprised. People were furious that we got this building, and they called me from the stage in a public meeting that we held with over 250 people, a white mother effer in less polite terms than what I'm saying right now, a colonizer, and uh, there was crying and screaming and yelling. And at that point, I realized I needed to shift even more of my time away from fundraising and vision casting to breaking more bread with more people and finding out why do they feel the way they feel and why didn't we experience that in any other neighborhood we've been in. And what people quickly described to me were a number of factors. You talk about the fact that we got this building for a dollar a year and it looks like Harry Potter's school for those you know, who haven't seen the building. It's gorgeous. Um, we began to become a potential threat in the community, a potential gentrifier. 
And people were thinking to themselves, I lost my house, and I couldn't get my house back. And this white guy gets this building for a dollar. And people know other nonprofits who have try, tried to acquire real estate led by black individuals and hadn't been able to get any kind of deal even close to that. And so now we're looking at white privilege realities. And then we're looking at the, the fact that typically most people who look like me who are given a building for a dollar a year coming into a, a low-income neighborhood really don't typically have the best interest of the community in mind. And I began to respect the perspective that people had because their concerns for gentrification weren't coming out of episodes from the Twilight Zone or conspiracy theories, but lived historical experience that's happening right here, right now. Okay, in our city of Detroit, our city's 142 square miles. We have an area we call downtown and midtown, the 7.2 square miles of Detroit. All of the development you're reading about and that you're seeing in the news that's positive, it's all happening right there. I can go to any of the top 10 hottest restaurants right now for lunch today, and there's a good chance I will not see a single black person in the entire restaurant, and in some of them, not even at the staff level, in a city that's 82% black. And I'm going to tell you the truth. That makes me sick to my stomach. I love the food, but if it makes me feel that way, I can only have a taste of what that feels like for African Americans who are afraid, rightfully so, of that development coming to their community by people who look just like me. Well, listen, listen to your last answer. One of the things that struck me is that too much of our public discourse, whether we're talking about politics, we're talking about religion, and in this case we're talking about race. I have a perspective on race. You have a perspective on race. And it's a binary conversation debating who's right or wrong. And what I hear you saying, it less than being right or wrong, is, the, is it not the acknowledgement that everybody has comes from a different social location and everybody has a truth and really, the truth is probably beyond our immediate grasp. Would that be accurate? Um, I'd say both. I would say there are truths that people in power don't want to hear and don't want to see. And, and we're benefiting from those realities. For those of us who, who have power or access to power through our skin color that we, we're not aware of, those realities that we we take unintentional steps to avoid ever coming to those conclusions. Mm -hmm. So I would say there, there are a number of universal truths that are staring us in the face. Um, but then back to your point about experience, yes, validating people's experience is so critical. And I'm not talking about relative truth where, you know, if, if you say, well, my truth is I want to steal from you. Oh, okay, that's your truth. Then go ahead and steal. Right, you know, my right. Truth is don't steal. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the realities of people's experience of racism. I have witnessed one scenario after another where my, my black brothers and sisters are explaining their perspective, and my white brothers and sisters are trying to defend how that wasn't really racism, and they misinterpreted the experience, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that people would continue to do that who represent my skin tone um, really just draws me to the fact that I did the same exact thing. But when I moved into proximity and began to understand how people of color actually are experiencing it, and it's real, nine times out of ten it's real, um, 
it changed my my whole level of respect and understanding. But you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. Who who is Karen Austin Hagerman? Uh, Karen Austin Hagerman is uh, a wonderful woman who ended up becoming one of our most dedicated volunteers when we were in Osborne in 2015. And uh, she's someone who um, is extremely hardworking, and she lived in the neighborhood and somehow didn't even know that we were coming into her community because she was going to work during the day, working late at night, coming home, taking care of her family, and she didn't hear about this six-day project. And then all of a sudden, these volunteers show up on her block one day and vast majority white, right? Um, and she's thinking to herself, what in the heck is going on in my neighborhood? And uh, she's the kind of person that's not just going to, you know, look at what's happening and, and say a complaint and then be on her way. She went out there and she wanted to find out what is this. And she saw it. She saw the work happening. She saw the transformation of her community, community taking place before her eyes. And it not only brought tears to her, her, her eyes and her heart of joy, uh, but she jumped in, went to work, got involved. She ended up involving herself and volunteering every single day that week. She came home after working a long day, put in work, and um, we found out, she explained to us, that uh, she was actually in a place of considering suicide just a number of weeks before our project arrived because she was so downtrodden on her future and her physical environment around her played a very significant role in that because not only was it physically depressing to see so much blight, overgrown brush and weeds and illegal dumping, but it was a significant factor in crime on her block where she was experiencing break-ins and drug deals and a number of things that she just didn't feel safe in, and she realized she had no other way out. She couldn't leave that community. She didn't have the financial means to do it. But it was through working together during this six-day project that gave her a boost that she said, you know what, okay, I know who I am. And she, she's an activist. She was reminded of who she is, what she's committed to, and uh, she's one of my favorite people I've ever met, and I've learned a tremendous amount from her. Now, you, you, you've mentioned it here during this interview. I'm speaking with Chris Lambert, uh, founder and CEO of uh, Life Remodeled in Detroit, Michigan. And, Chris, you, you, you've mentioned several times about your volunteers. And the actual number you, you, you cite is 10,000. How does one recruit 10,000 volunteers? Walk us through that, please. Absolutely. Well, a, a number of factors. I would say, on one hand, it's, it's kind of like this. If you go and you eat at a great restaurant, you're going to tell one or two people how great it was. If you eat at a restaurant where the, the food or the service are terrible, you're probably going to tell seven to ten people. So one of the most critical things about our annual six-day projects are that we deliver. We are highly organized. We make sure you get to work. You get the job done. You're going to turn around after a couple hours, and you're going to look back, and you're going to say, whoa, look what I just did. Look what we just did together and you're going to have a phenomenal experience and that's one of the ways we've grown over the years is by delivering on those volunteer experiences because too often people go to volunteer for something and they're standing around they don't know if they're really needed they run out of work to do and they're, they're left thinking to themselves you know what i didn't really make much of an impact today i'm not going to do this again and uh, a number another factor would be the fact that we're bringing together people from the city the suburbs different walks of life, 
and uh, many volunteers come from corporate America and from church groups. And so church groups, of course, are very driven by their faith to be involved in serving, or, or any faith group, let's just say. And then the corporations in America right now, there is a huge push, and I'm glad that there is, toward corporate social responsibility. And particularly, millennials are very uh, passionate about joining companies that are active in the community, volunteering in the community. So companies are constantly looking for ways to get their employees engaged. We happen to have a system that can handle more volunteers than any other organization in the region, and, and, and maybe in, in you know the Midwest. I don't know. So in some instances, we've had General Motors send 3,700 volunteers in one week to us. Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, has volunteered with us multiple times. Chrysler will send 1,000 volunteers. Quicken Loans, Rocket Mortgage will send 2,000 volunteers. And uh, so they come from all over. Some companies send two people. Some churches send 1,000. And then, of course, we have volunteers right here from the community. So it's a number of factors that contribute to a very positive experience that people want to continue to be a part of. And then uh, a factor I'm even more excited about would be the life transformation that takes place while volunteering. So we surveyed our volunteers last summer on our our project where we had 10,000 volunteers. Eight out of 10, and and that's 1,000 people who responded, eight out of 10 or 800 out of uh, 1,000 said that that very day they experienced positive change in their thoughts or feelings about people of another race, religion, political perspective, or socioeconomic status as a result of putting their shoulders together with someone who didn't look like them, they began to realize they respected them, they liked them, they needed them, and that is what brings me the most joy that that kind of transformation is taking place. So, Chris, I would be remiss if we didn't um, talk a little bit about your story because your story is tied to the vision of, of, of Life Remodel. So tell us about how you got to this moment. Okay, well, I mentioned earlier I grew up in this small town in northern Indiana. I ended up going to Indiana University to study business, and my plan was to go to law school and become a real estate developer because I knew that that was a great way to make a whole lot of money, and that's something I was very passionate about at that time in my life. Well, my junior year of college, I moved to Australia for six months to study overseas. And while I was there, I had what I would call a radical encounter with God that changed the whole trajectory of my life. So a couple things happened while I was there. One, I started traveling around in Southeast Asia, the Pacific Rim, and, of course, Australia. And I began to realize the world is a very big place, and it did not revolve around my 22-year-old ego at that time. And unfortunately, that was a pretty big shocker to me. Um, so that was important for my sense of self and my sense of, of uh, where I'm at, right? And the next thing that happened is I became really good friends with a couple guys over there who happened to be what I would call Jesus followers, okay? I don't really use the word Christian a lot to describe my, my faith because of so many ways of Christianity and what it's become in, in our country. That's, another, that's a whole other show we could have, my friend, so go right ahead. <laughs> well, let's do it. So uh, these guys were pretty fun guys. They could go out to a bar, have a drink or two, or a cigar like you and I shared together at Top Leaf. And uh, meanwhile, then they'd go home and I'd stay out doing everything they weren't doing. And eventually, they asked me to come to uh, to a church service with them. And I said, no, man, you know, I did that when I was a kid. Uh, I actually
actually used to have a really strong faith, didn't work out for me, totally walked away from it, not interested. But they pressed me on it, and I said, you know what, fine, I'll go because you're going. So we ended up going to this little church. Uh, it was okay. I went back a second time, and the third time that I went, I experienced hearing God speak to me for the first time in my life. And what came out of that experience that inspired me the most was for the first time in my life after that very significant spiritual encounter, I began to care deeply about people. Prior to that experience, I loved my mom and dad, my sister, I loved my friends, my fraternity brothers, but I didn't give a crap about the rest of the world. After this, um, it was a whole different story. So I moved back to Indiana University for my senior year to finish out business school and get ready to go to law school. Before I left IU, there was not a single Jesus follower in my entire fraternity of 180 guys. Before I got back, this had nothing to do with me. My three best friends had all had these crazy spiritual encounters with God in the frat, plus my drug dealer who was in jail for selling meth. He got out. We got this Bible study going in the fraternity. We were leading dudes to Jesus left and right. We had 12 to 15 guys coming on a regular basis to this Bible study. And I started thinking about my future, and I said, I don't want to go to law school and become a real estate developer. That's just about me trying to make a bunch of money and be powerful. I just want to help people follow God. So I felt like God was calling me to be a pastor. That was the only thing that made sense to me. Moved out to Los Angeles, studied seminary, met the woman who became my wife, got married, felt led to come start a church in Detroit. But before that, moved to Africa, uh, seven months in Liberia, two months in Uganda. That's where I learned community development. And that's what solidified for me that experience in Africa, that church had to be a way of life, not an event. And back to what I said earlier, I'm convinced Jesus spent the majority of his time with the most marginalized people. And so when we started this church, that was the mentality we brought to it, and we tried a lot of different outreaches to really make an impact in the lives of people who were, who were struggling. And it was in 2010 in April, through an off-the-wall conversation with somebody, uh, that led me to this idea of starting Life Remodeled. And at the time that we started Life Remodeled, we had less than 200 people in our church. We had about $8,000 in the bank. Only two people out of our 200 were not blue-collar. We had no influence, no ability to pull this project off. And exactly one year later from the day the idea was conceived, in, in April of 2011, we implemented our first project, and, and that was the beginning of something that radically changed my life um, as well, where I began to realize that this work with Life Remodeled was an even better fit for who I am and what I'm called to do in society than what I was doing at that time in pastoring a church. Um, now, all that said, I'm actually planning on launching another church next year, but it's going to be completely different than anything I've experienced before or anything that I've led before. Uh, for those who are listening to this broadcast and would like to either be involved or, 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 or reach out to Life Remodel, how, how would they do that? Well, they can get engaged through our website, which is liferemodel.com, L-I-F-E-R-E-M-O-D-E-L-E-D.com. Of course, we would love for people to engage financially, and we, we're not asking for donations. We're inviting you to invest in the lives of children and families in Detroit. And you can serve with us during our six-day project. People literally come from Maine, California. Um, not sure we've had anybody come from another country yet. 
But East Coast, West Coast, during our six days, you can come as much as you want or as little as you want. We provide all the tools. We provide a free lunch. Uh, it's a very streamlined experience. And, of course, we also have a playbook on our website that was funded by Chip and Joanna Gaines of the TV show Fixer Upper. And that playbook is where we are actually just giving out our strategy for free to anybody who wants to learn from it. That's based on our old strategy where we used to renovate existing high schools. In the next couple of years, we're going to develop a new playbook based on our current and new strategy that we're going to replicate. But we try to make our, our, um, our philosophy as open source as possible so that people can benefit from it around the country. Chris Lambert, founder and CEO of Life Remodeled. I want to thank you, my friend, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Well, this was an honor and a joy, and I'm so glad we met and that uh, we were able to make this happen so quickly. So I, I, I can't wait to continue to be a part of um, just everything that you're putting out there. So thank you, Byron. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh -huh.